Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week is Hans Borsma. Dr. Borsma wrote a book recently called Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition with Erdman's Press. That was released in 2018. Uh, it was actually a book that he wrote while a professor uh, at the uh, at St. Louis University in the Danforth Center. Um, so I got to know Dr. Borsma a little bit in my graduate program and he was kind enough to let me interview him for an hour about uh, several different things, including Christian... Platonism, uh, what it means to read the scriptures sacramentally, um, and we did a little bit of uh, discussion of Gregory Palamas and St. Augustine and others in the Christian tradition and how they understood the creator-creation distinction. Uh, this podcast was actually recorded a month or two ago. Uh, it has been a difficult uh, few months in my own life, and so I have not been able to release this until now. So my apologies to Dr. Bearsma and to our audience. Um, I have a few other guests that I would like to interview in the near future, um, and uh, hopefully I get to those soon as our semester is coming to a close uh, at the places where I'm currently adjuncting. So uh, thank you for listening, and thank you especially to Dr. Bearsma for giving me his time uh, and uh, in, in this interview. So um, thank you for listening, and please rate us and review us on iTunes, and we hope to have some new episodes out for you soon. Um, this week on the History of Christian Theology, we have Dr. Hans Bearsma, uh, who's the chair of the Order of St. Benedict's Servants of Christ Endowed Professorship in Ascetical Theology, so just a small title. Um, at the uh, Nashatoa House, um, a uh, Anglo-Catholic um, seminary in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, but the main subject of our conversation today will be his recent book, uh, Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition. And uh, I think it also uh, is uh, won the award for the Theology and Ethics Book of the Year from Christianity Today in 2019, and that's with uh, Erdman's Press. Um, I actually got the book as a Christmas gift uh, last year, um, and so um, I, I have uh, been enjoying it for some time. Um, so I'm very excited to have uh, Dr. Bearsma on today to talk with us uh, a little bit more about the writing of this work. So Dr. Bearsma, thank you so much for, for coming on. No, thank you for having me, Chad. It's a privilege. <laughs> um, well, we'll just uh, hop right in. So I've uh, written up a few questions uh, that I've sent to Dr. Bearsma, and so I'm just going to kind of start with uh, some of those. Uh, the first one is a phrase which comes up frequently in Seeing God uh, is the phrase Christian Platonism. So on our podcast, uh, we've mentioned this briefly a, a little bit um, in the podcast that we did with Philip Carey on the meaning of Protestant theology, um, and, and in a few other places, we've we've talked about Platonism broadly. Uh, but maybe um, Dr. Bearsma could give us a little bit uh, more uh, background on what is Christian Platonism and why is this important for Christians uh, to to consider or welcome as they as an understanding of their own um, sort of theological um, uh, tradition. Yeah, thank you for that uh, question, Chad. Um, it's it's difficult for us today, perhaps, to imagine, but through most of the history of of the church, uh, Christian Platonism, as we now call it, um, was more or less the the commonly accepted outlook on life. Um, so. Whereas today, perhaps we may scratch behind the ear when we hear that somebody is a Christian Platonist, that would not have been the case for much of the history of the church. Um, Christian theology is essentially unthinkable 
without Christian Platonism. And the main, that's not to say, that's not to say, and I should immediately qualify this, that's not to say that Christians are primarily Platonists. They're first and foremost Christians, of course. I actually just last night was uh, listening to an interview with Andrew Louth, um, or not an interview, a presentation that he did rather at King's College um, on Christian Platonism. And um, although he's uh, very much in tune with what Christian Platonism stands for, Andrew Louth made the point that he actually doesn't like the term Christian Platonism. And the reason for it is that Platonism is the noun, and Christian is simply the adjective that qualifies the noun. And strictly speaking, therefore, the term Christian Platonism might seem to give the impression that we're first and foremost Platonists, and that we're Christian second. Um, that fairly obviously cannot, or at least ought not, to be the case. Um, a Christian can never be straightforwardly a Platonist for a variety of reasons, um, but on a number of points, Platonism is incompatible with the Christian faith. Uh, that's perhaps the first and important caveat that I should make. That said, though, um, I think it is fair to say that in much of the history of Christian thought, the reason why uh, important aspects of the Platonic tradition were uh, of interest and, and, and were appealing to Christian theologians, is that uh, the Platonic tradition had a sense that heavenly and earthly things were closely connected. That is to say, um, earthly realities were seen not simply as existing by themselves, uh, as having their own being, uh, as having their own um, perhaps true good and, and, and beautiful aspects. Rather, um, created things were seen as participating in what you might call capital B being, or capital mm -hmm. T truth, capital G goodness. Uh, so, so created things um, exist by way of derivation, you could say, or exist by way of participation. They participate, and Christians would put it this way, they participate um, by sharing in um, the eternal word of God. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that link between heaven and earth is something that we've lost in modernity, where we've, quote-unquote, pushed God upstairs, and where we just get on with our lives in a purely natural world here below. To my mind, that seems like a, like a uh, drastic and also, also a fatal turn to make. And Christian Platonism rightly, I think, reminds us uh, that there is more to the things that we see around us than we can access with the, uh, with the senses, with, with our sensorium. Mm. Yeah, that's very helpful. And um, that just made me think that one of the sort of uh, points of conversation in the book is, is how exactly do we get to this place where we've made this uh, disconnect between uh, the, the God above and the earth below. Um, and, and one of the pers persons in that conversation is Augustine. Um, there's a little bit of a question about whether or not he is, should be understood as sort of um, maybe a, an early precursor to this dissociation uh, or in fact, in your reading, um, and, and maybe also in uh, uh, Father McConey's reading, who I studied with, um, that actually Augustine would understand that these are more connected, that actually Augustine is much closer uh, to what, what you describe as kind of a Christian Platonism. Yes. 
Um, yeah, in my book, I, I, I quote Father McConey, and I love his work on St. Augustine. Um, I, I think Father McConey is, is right to, to say, to, to make the claim that um, Augustine believed that in some ways already today, um, we have experiences through which we can share in, 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 and through which we can anticipate um, our eternal destiny of the beatific vision, of the vision of God. Um, so we, ha we have some sort of um, privilege already today in contemplative experiences. And Augustine, Augustine uh, makes the point quite clearly several times in his confessions that he, he himself has had those experiences. Um, so that already in this life, there is a, a um, sacramental deposit, you could almost say, of mm. eternity. Um, now, now that said, I, I understand why some people might say, yes, but isn't, isn't, isn't Augustine a precursor of modernity and doesn't he keep this world and the next separate from one another? And doesn't he keep this world and the world above separate from one another? Um, it may not be helpful for our interview to go through the reasons that people put down for that, but, but I understand why they, why they might say that. But if you, if you, if you put everything together, um, it seems to me Augustine was a Christian Platonist, and that implied uh, a strong reliance on Plotinus, and that in turn implied also, I think, a participatory outlook on life. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the, you mentioned this a little bit in your book, and, and as does McConey when he talks about deification and participation. Yeah, that actually Augustine is is much more like uh, the the Greek fathers uh, than is sometimes understood. Mm -hmm. um, he sort of seems like he's on an island on his own, but really um, his his outlook as as it is shaped by by Plotinus and, and Plato and these others that is actually much closer. Um, not that he doesn't, he makes all the same moves, he certainly doesn't, um, but, but you might think that there's more alike than there is uh, different. That's a good way of putting it, I think. Um, the theme of deification that you mentioned uh, is huge for St. For Augustine. And um, that theme is predicated, is, is, is grounded in uh, an over, under, overall understanding of creation as in some way participating already uh, in heavenly realities. Um, and Augustine, with his, uh, for example, in his in his early book Dei Days uh, on, on divine ideas, um, his his reliance there on Plato and on Plato's divine ideas is is obvious. And although he becomes increasingly Christological and increasingly biblical as he as he moves along, uh, Saint Augustine never never repudiates that that uh, earlier um, uh, Platonist or, or or Plotinian mindset of his. Mm-hmm. Well, to take a little bit of a step back, um, so the title of your book is Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition. Um, so could you tell us a little bit what, what exactly is the Beatific Vision um, and why have some uh, recent or more modern theologians been skeptical of using uh, this kind of language of vision? The Beatific Vision is, is um, the vision of God in the eschaton or in the hereafter. So the, the term beatific uh, comes from beatus, blessed or happy. So it is um, a, a vision uh, of the blessed, of the beati, of, of those who are happy. And it is a vision also that renders us happy, that renders us blessed. 
Um, so when we when we're with God, who Himself is happiness, who Himself is blessedness, He's the definition or the instantiation, whatever you, word you want to want to use, of happiness, of blessedness. Um, when we, when we when we are eternally with God, eternally with happiness, when we join His happiness. Um, in union with God in the hereafter, um, then that renders us um, truly happy uh, in as much as finite creatures can share in that happiness of God. Um, that, that, I think, has been um, the outlook, the eschatological outlook of the church through the centuries. I'm not saying anything new with this. <laughs> um, it's pretty, pretty, pretty standard and, and humdrum uh, articulation of something that is absolutely astounding theologically. Um, now, um, in, in modernity, um, because the participatory understanding of reality has largely been displaced with one in which heaven and earth are separate from one another, which I typically would call a nominalist outlook. On, on reality. Uh, in this nominalist or separate understanding of heaven and earth, um, it, it's hard for us, it has become hard for us um, to treat God as the ultimate aim um, mm-hmm. of, of, of everything that we go through here in this life. And so when, when modern Christians think of the question, what is the hereafter going to be like? Typically, what we're, we're almost immediately inclined to do is say, well, all the things that we enjoy here and now are going to be present also then and there. Mm-hmm. Just better, just more of them, just more beautiful, just greater, just more intense, whatever. But the same, same things, plural. Um, and uh, the, the earlier tradition would have said, um, well, your your desires for these for, for this worldly things for temporal things doesn't doesn't run deep enough. You need to deepen your desires for for only only God Himself can truly satisfy our deepest desires. And so Saint Augustine famously, right in the very beginning of his Confessions, our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. And it seems to me that that emphasis on contemplation, that emphasis on contemplation of God, that is, um, that emphasis on a theocentric understanding, a God-focused understanding of the hereafter, is something that we've become increasingly impatient with, uh, also in modern theology. And uh, my book is is meant in part as a correction to that, and is, is, is meant in part as a way of saying, look at what the tradition has done, the tradition has pointed us to God himself and has insisted that nothing less than God can truly make us happy. Hmm. Yeah, that's very good. Um, well, in, in one of the parts uh, that your work seeks to uh, sort of maybe add, I guess, or not maybe not add, but sort of draw out in the tradition is the place of Christ uh, in that beatific vision, right? So there's something about like, uh, it, you call it a theocentric vision, but how do we understand this as Christological? Um, and, and I think that's one of the uh, important contributions uh, that you make in your work is to sort of um, draw draw that back into the center, how this is a Christological vision. Uh, you care to to comment on that, or why why is this one been sort of somewhat relegated, but but now drawn back into the center? 
Yes, it's true that uh, one of the one of the points that I try to make in the book is that um, we should not separate uh, the vision of Christ from the vision of God. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the key verses, I suppose, in in my constructive part of the book is uh, John fourteen verse nine, uh, where Jesus says to Philip, uh, "He who has seen me uh, has seen the Father." Um, and I think implicit in Jesus' comment to Philip is that um, there is not something behind God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ um, that is that it that is perhaps going to come to us at some later point in time or or in the eschaton. Um, when God reveals Himself in Jesus Christ, He reveals Himself in Jesus Christ. That is to say. Um, God's revelation is true, is dependable, and 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 the sacrament um, truly makes the reality present. So mm. God, Christ being the sacrament, um, the incarnation being the sacrament, and and God Him showing Himself truly in that ur sacrament, in that basic sacrament of Jesus Christ. Um, so in in the hereafter. It seems to me, um, when we see God face to face, we see him in Jesus Christ. Uh, the incarnation is not, uh, not a temporary thing. It's an eternal thing. And we will see God in Christ, I think, also in the hereafter. Now, we will see, we, we will see God in a much more glorious way, um, in an intensity that we cannot possibly even begin to imagine today. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it is it is Jesus Christ all the same, um, and many uh, as uh, one of the things that struck me as I was as I was doing the research for this book is that many of the theologians of the tradition um, make this very same point, whether it's uh, Saint Gregory of Nyssa talking about Moses going up the mountain in the life of Moses, and 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 talking about the tabernacle that that he that that Moses sees there. Um, and recognizing then that the tabernacle is Jesus Christ himself. So whether it's Greg of Nyssa, whether it's Simeon the theologian, uh, the new theologian, or, or Greg of Palamas, uh, Bonaventure, Jonathan Edwards, um, a number of Puritan theologians especially, they all, they all highlight this Christological element. Um, now, there's a bit of a polemical aspect, I suppose, to this emphasis, um, and that is that I, I think that in in Saint Thomas Aquinas, um, with his focus on the essence of God um, as as something that we don't have access to today, but that we will attain to in the hereafter, um, seems to me a, a somewhat of a of a um, lesser emphasis. On Christology, when it comes to the doctrine of the beatific vision, and of course Thomas Aquinas is hugely influential in later Western tradition. Um, so I, I, I must confess that I prefer um, the earlier Eastern tradition on this, and 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 also some elements of of the later Protestant tradition. 
Yeah, and and that might be something like the palamite uh, distinction between essences and energies, or um, other ways of conceiving. What does it mean to see? Is that kind of the the what you're referring to there? Kind of yes. I um, it, it, things get a little technical at this point, but yeah, but let, fair let, enough. <laughs> let let me put it this way: I'm very sympathetic to what uh, Palamas and other Eastern theologians, drawing on the Church Fathers, do with the essence energies distinction. Um, and and when 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 they make the distinction, um, they they make the point that. Um, we we um, have access, quote unquote, to the energies of God, and that is to say, the way that God acts or operates in the world. Um, but the essence of God um, is something that is out of reach today, and that will remain out of reach also in the hereafter. Um, now, I don't quite take the same approach in the book. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to this, and, and, and I, I love the underlying idea of it, namely that we can never comprehend God himself. And by the way, as an aside, it's not like Thomas Aquinas has no understanding of that at all. <laughs> but but I, I appreciate what, what, what Palamas does there and, and what the earlier theologians uh, tried to do as well. It's The reason why I don't use the distinction between essence and energies myself is that um, Christological emphasis that I mentioned earlier when I said um, when God reveals himself, he truly reveals himself. So the Christ is a true revelation of God. Um, it's, it's not like there is an essence behind uh, God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, I would much prefer or much prefer. I would. I, I think it's perhaps better to 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 say that when God reveals Himself in Jesus Christ, He reveals His essence to us. Now, um, that essence uh, contains an infinite depth. And the essence of God's love is infinite, and we only have a very tiny grasp of it in a human manner. Um, but. Um, I, I'm apprehensive of, of dividing up, as it were, and I, I want to be careful what I say by way of accusation, quote unquote, of Gregory Palmer. But I'm, I'm apprehensive of 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 of, of making a, a, a sharp distinction between essence and energies. Mm. Um, the, the distinction that that Palmer makes. Um, safeguards the, trans- the transcendence of God, to be sure, um, but it safeguards it only to the extent that, that it, it is a real distinction in mm-hmm. God. And, and, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with that. But again, the underlying, the underlying conviction, namely that, that God always is transcendent to us, that, that the infinite God is always and always remains behind, beyond us and always remains greater than us, um, that's deeply embedded within the Eastern tradition, deeply embedded um, in, in, in Palamas's thought, and it's something for which I think we should be grateful. Mm. Well, and maybe one way to draw on the sort of the, the modern approaches that you also mentioned would be to say uh, that 
um, there are different metaphors uh, that that one can use for talking about how God reveals God's self. Uh, whether you know, most of the time uh, we focused on vision so far in this conversation, as that is the emphasis on your book. But you you do mention uh, early in the book that 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 you could also think of hearing. Um, Balthazar uses the notion of of a river of water of flowing. Um, you know, and and I, as I've mentioned before, we um, I was very uh, interested in Dr. Philip Carey's work on uh, the meaning of Protestant theology, where he takes Luther's emphasis on God revealing Christ as the Word and that being uh, spoken, um, and so he has this emphasis on hearing um, that that he thinks is very uh, important in um, and maybe even. Um, the, he calls it the great contribution that Protestants have made to the great tradition. Um, so why, why is uh, – and your your mind and your book is arguing that vision is a better way to conceive of this uh, – thinking about eschatology and thinking about revelation. It's vision is the primary metaphor. So why would, why would one opt for vision maybe over and against or at least uh, – and do, maybe downplay hearing? Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let you respond to that. Um, well, um, I, I would not want to be understood as downplaying hearing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the the, the theme, no, no, it's good. <laughs> I didn't know. Um, it's just that the, the, the theme of, of, of the word and the theme of hearing, of obedience, is huge in scripture. Um, so so um, the element of, of the word and, and, and the... Um, the sense of hearing that corresponds to it and the sense of obedience that corresponds to it. Um, all, all of that is an important constellation of themes uh, throughout scripture, I think. Um, and <clears throat> I think it is true that, that Protestant theology has, has emphasized that, has, has come to renewed um, appreciation slash emphasis on that theme. Um, however, um, the, th <coughs> the, the, the reason why God gives us his word, his, 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 um, command, um, is, um, to bring us into eternal fellowship with him. Um, the scriptures I often say are a sacrament. Mm -hmm. And the communion with God is the reality, the race. Um, so St. Augustine makes the point that um, the purpose of, of, of reading scripture, of, of hearing, is, is that we might love. The end point is, is love of God and love of neighbor. And if we perfectly love, we don't need the Bible. Uh, Augustine is entirely correct, I think. In the hereafter, there will be no sacraments. Um, there'll be no priests. There'll be no Bible. Not because these are bad things, um, and, 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 and uh, the Christian tradition uh, makes clear that, I think, that hearing and, uh, and that, the, that the word, that God's commandments are very important. Um, but um, they have their aim in the heavenly reality uh, itself. That is to say, they have their aim in the union between God and us. Mm -hmm. Something that, that the theme of command or of word <clears throat> doesn't do is it does not articulate 
um, the moment of union itself. A word is spoken to us from above by one who has authority <clears throat> in itself. While that's entirely appropriate, um, it does not yet convey the point of union that we reach um, when we obey that word and when we follow that word. And for that, I think we need different metaphors. And, and the one that I think is most prominent in scripture is, is, is that of vision, and also the one that is most prominent in, in tradition. There's one, one additional comment that I, sh that I should maybe make here, and that is, while it's true that the Protestant Reformation um, strongly emphasized the word, um, it is less than accurate to say that the earlier tradition um, undervalued it. Um, when you when you read um, the church fathers and medieval theologians, it quickly becomes clear that these were Bible-centered folk. <coughs> um, I'm working right now on, on the theme of Lexio Divina, um, and you, you cannot but read um, these uh, earlier theologians, whether it's John Cassian or, or, or later Hugh of St. Victor. It, it really doesn't matter. They, they, they were they were saturated with scripture mm. in a way that we moderns simply are not. Um, so the, the easy caricatures of the Middle Ages or of the patristic era as, as shorn of any sort of biblical biblical foundation or biblical uh, shaping is, uh, is one that we should uh, rid ourselves of as quickly as we can. Mm, that's very helpful. And, and something I, I also found the first time I read the confessions, um, I just remember being struck by how the the footnotes had so many references to scripture. It mm. felt like, you know, his language uh, was just him pa uh, pasting together quotes uh, from scripture. Like, you know, he couldn't speak one sentence without mm -hmm. some sort of b brief allusion or reflection on scripture. And and I was, I, I was raised in a Southern Baptist home. And so, you know, we were taught to memorize scripture and all sure. I could think was, man, he knows scripture uh, better <laughs> than I do. And I feel like, you know, I, I feel like I'm taught it all the time. Yes. <laughs> and all by memory indeed. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, to uh, kind of um, break up the conversation a little, um, I uh, one question I'm beginning to ask my guests is, uh, what is one position you hold or belief uh, which you hold to be true that has changed uh, in your life? And, and this is intended to be open-ended. Um, it, it doesn't have to be something extremely serious, uh, but just what's, what's one way as you've studied things that you've sort of changed your mind on or realized that, uh, wow, I've got I've to rethink this. Um, and, yes. and like I say, it's intended to be open-ended. So, <laughs> Well, to live is to change, I suppose. And uh, St. <laughs> Gregory uh, of Nyssa uh, makes the point that while God is unchanging, immutable, we are mutable, we are changing. And for Gregory, that's a good thing because it allows us mm -hmm. to grow more deeply into the life of God. So mutability for creatures is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I've... I've uh, uh, I have changed my mind uh, on, on a number of things over the years. Um, I suppose that the, the, the most significant change uh, came early on in my teaching career. Um, I grew up as a um, Reformed theologian, uh, studied a Puritan theologian uh, for my doctoral dissertation, Richard Baxter, his understanding of justification. And I had gone to seminary in a, uh, in a Reformed seminary and learned to read the scriptures um, through what 
typically was called a redemptive historical method. And with that, uh, what, what was meant by that is we need, we need to read the scriptures in terms of their original context, historically, uh, and, and at the climax of that story, at the climax is Jesus Christ. So we read the entire scriptures always with a view to uh, the coming of Jesus Christ, always forward looking to him. Um, so, so it's quite a historical and, and grammatically grounded uh, way of reading the scriptures. Um, that's how I grew up, and that's that's what I what what was reinforced during my seminary studies. Um, there's lots in that that I deeply value, appreciate, and, and I'm grateful for. Um, but what revolutionized my my approach to reading scripture is reading Henri de Lubac, uh, the 20th century Jesuit. Uh, it was a, a little essay of his. Um, I think it's called Allegory and Topology, something like that. Um, and when I started reading Henri de Lubac and later on read more by Henri de Lubac, um, books such as Scripture in the Tradition, Medieval Exegesis, and so on, um, I came to... to um, I came to an understanding of the Church Fathers' um, modes of reading Scripture as not being arbitrary, not being um, weird or strange, but as actually um, a, a way of foregrounding Christ as the main contents of all of Scripture. Mm. Um, and that, to me, was an eye-opener. Um it allowed me to read the fathers and medieval uh, theologians uh, with much less prejudice uh, mm. than I would have done before that. Uh, not that I knew the church fathers or medieval theologians well before that, um, but but this world now opened itself up to me. I, I could enter into it, um, and 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 I could I could love what I what I what I read. In, in St. Augustine, I could love what I read in Irenaeus, I could love what I read in Gregory Nyssa, etc. Um, why? Because while history is important, and while I continued to find historical exegesis an important aspect of, of interpretation, I came to recognize that history only, uh, or doing historical, historical analysis is, is only the beginning step, is only the first step of a much deeper and much lengthier uh, engagement with Scripture. Um, uh, a Christological and an ecclesial uh, engagement with Scripture. And mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, that, that to me was a, was a real eye-opener and has, has shaped not just my way of reading Scripture, um, but it has shaped uh, also... Um, my, my, my broader metaphysic, my understanding of, of how the world as a whole, um, quote unquote, hangs together, whether mm -hmm. God has made it. Yeah, and I, I guess one way to describe a lot of that would be the importance of the sacramentum and race distinction, right? And and that's a, a focus of a lot of your uh, other works. Um, and and you've you've mentioned it briefly, but um, you know how how do you um, maybe just give us a could you give us a brief uh, explanation of what is a sacramental um, outlook? Because uh, it seems like that may be one other way to talk about uh, some of the things that you've just stated. Yes, thank you for that. Um, so Henri de Lubac made the point that for the church fathers, 
um, the scriptures, as they called it, and with that they meant uh, primarily the Old Testament, as we now call it. The scriptures were a sacramentum. They were a sacrament, an outward, outward garment, as it were. And um, hidden within the sacramentum um, was, was, was the content of, of, of Christ himself, the race, the reality, hence sacramentum and race. Um, the, the Old Testament sacrament and then the New Testament reality. And, and, and Dulibach argued that for the Church Fathers, that race, that reality is not something that simply comes later, although chronologically, historically speaking, obviously it does, but that race, that reality of Christ was always already present within the, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament themselves. So when we read the Old Testament um, in order to look there for Christ, we're not imposing Christ um, in an arbitrary fashion onto the scriptures. No, we're finding him there. Irenaeus already in the late second century um, uses the imagery of, of digging up the treasure, the treasury. And he's thinking here of Matthew chapter 13, um, where, where, where somebody sells everything he has for the sake of, 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 of having that plot of ground where he can dig up the treasure. And, and, and St. Irenaeus already makes a point that our job as Bible readers is to take, the sh- take shovel in hand and dig up the scriptures in order to find Christ there, to find him there, because he's already there. Now, that, that notion that scripture is, is, is sacramentally constituted, as it were, um, is something that, according to, to, to Lubbock, fit within a broader sacramental understanding of reality as a whole. So he can apply it um, not just to, to biblical interpretation, but to um, the understanding of the cosmos as a whole. Uh, so that created things are sacraments, sacramenta again, um, in which Christ is present in some manner, really present in some manner. Or to put it the other way around, uh, created, created things participate in the heavenly reality of the eternal word of God. Um, so, so the the notion of 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 sacramentality is is not just a hermeneutical a hermeneutical thing. It is it is also uh, a, a cosmic thing, and it has something. It says something also about the. The, the, the pilgrimage, the journey that as Christians we undertake. Um, it, is, it is through our daily decision-making, um, choosing between good and evil, um, that we come to participate or not um, more profoundly in Jesus Christ. And so our virtues, small v virtues, participate um, to varying degrees um, in Christ Himself, so there too, um, there are external, external acts, actions, small v virtues, um, that that participate, as it were, or or you could also say, these small small v virtues, these actions are things in which Christ makes Himself present, so that whatever it is that we do that is that is morally upright, or that is good, or that is beautiful. Um, 
is 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 is, is participates in some small way in Jesus Christ. So the whole notion that you know uh, what we do is 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 something we do by ourselves on our own steam is entirely foreign to this way of thinking because whatever mm. it is that we do is 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 always in some small manner a participation in the capital V virtue that constitutes Jesus Christ himself. Mm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, one thing that you're like, like, so you're you're picking up on this um, sort of uh, platonic and and patristic uh, use of the language of participation. Um, I, I was just re going back through your introduction, and you uh, mentioned the the creator creation distinction, um, and it, it strikes me that this could be uh, one thing that's easily misunderstood, maybe uh, about this language of participation, um, especially as as I would have understood it growing up. Um, but how, you know, how is it that we can understand um, how we are separate from the creator, but at the same time, how this participation language um, sort of, you know, helps us think about our, our continuing connection to uh, the creator? That is like, how do we, you know, how do we do this dance where we don't uh, collapse that distinction, but we also maybe don't uh, push it too far away as if these t things are totally separate? Yeah, um, I, I, I suppose it's it's possible to fall off the the wagon on on, on either side. Um, you, you could collapse, like you say, the distinction between creator and creature, and um, and and lose divine transcendence. Pantheism does. Pantheism mm -hmm. ignores the difference between creator and creature. Um, that's that's to fall off the one side of the wagon. Um, the the other uh, the other way in which you could fall off the wagon, the other side is is to say, um, God is up there, we're down here, and uh, there's a gap between us. That's why God is transcendent, and that's why He's the Creator, and that's why we are creatures. Um, such a separation separates literally God from the world, um, and God is not imminent in the world at all. Um, so the former wants to emphasize imminence, pantheism, and therefore collapses the two. Um, the latter wants to emphasize transcendence and therefore separates the two. Um, the, the best elements, I think, of, of Christian tradition have, have typically maintained that God is transcendent precisely in his ability to become imminent in this world. And God is imminent in this world, can be, can be imminent in this world precisely in as much and because he is transcendent. Uh, so transcendence and imminence don't, don't uh, oppose each other. It's not that, like you have to choose for the one rather than for the other. Um, it's rather that the one always already presupposes the other. Um, if, if you look at the history of Christian thought, it is typically those Christian Platonist theologians uh, whether it's Gregory, Nicholas of Cusa, Jonathan Edwards, it's typically those Christian theologians who most strongly emphasize divine sovereignty, uh, divine transcendence, uh, who at this one and the same time uh, highlighted um, that God makes himself present in this world and that we can experience and see God in this world precisely. Um, so the two are not opposed to one another, I think. They, 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 they 
presuppose one another. Yeah, it's um, just a. Uh, if you would permit me a brief uh, personal uh, reflection, uh, um, I it's it's interesting as I've continued my studies how important this uh, creator and creature distinction has become, um, and like how I realize that maybe in some sense like this is the heart of sort of the like theological conversation. Just exactly how do we how do we conceive of this? And almost by accident, I ended up in a study group with uh, Grant Kaplan trying to read um, Shavara's uh, Analogia Entis um, mm. and trying. And so I had heard about this as a seminary student at Princeton Seminary a little bit, you know, that Bart preferred the Analogia Fidei and uh, the, the Catholics uh, supposedly believed in this Antichrist, uh, as, as Bart calls it, um, the Analogia uh, Entis. And uh, I've just been sort of, I was, I mean, I'm not sure I understood. I don't know how much of Chavara as I was reading it. I feel like very little, um, but, uh, uh, but it was just like, you know, it was amazing how much reflection uh, that, and how much important reflection on the sort of human experience um, is really just this question, uh, to what extent uh, are we connected to God and to what extent are we separated from God? And, you know, how do we, how does this, how is this gap bridged? I mean, this really does seem to be the perennial and deep question of theology. I think you're right. It's a question that comes up time and time again, and, and not only time and time again, but also no matter what theological topic or locus you're, you're, you're touching, you're struggling with this issue of analogy and you're struggling with this issue of the relationship between nature and the supernatural. Absolutely. Um, and, but, but it's important, I think, always to go back to in, in, this, in this issue. And, and Bart, I think, wanted to do that in his own way, although I think he, he, he didn't quite get there in the right fashion in the end. But, but it, it's, it's important to go back ultimately to the incarnation. For it's in, in a hypostatic union, I think, that God reveals to us truly himself and in so doing makes clear that, that um, uh, he does not have to give up his divinity in order to become human, but that he becomes man while, while retaining um, his, his divine transcendence. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's very helpful. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. If you wouldn't mind, I'll, I'll go ahead and just ask you one more question, and we could probably uh, wrap up with this. Sounds good. Uh, all right. So the the very end of your book is is maybe uh, more of a dogmatic proposal um, about divine uh, pedagogy, um, and I just thought maybe you could give us a little bit um, of a. Uh, um, of an explanation of, of what you understood by this and how, how, in a, how you, uh, you know, sort of explain the way in which God uh, prepares us and molds us and shapes us uh, into uh, people who can see, um, see God in, in the eschaton. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so most of the book indeed is, is, uh, is, is me tracing a number of theologians from the past and 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 discussing uh, their strengths, sometimes also their weaknesses, but basically looking at the way in which they articulate the beatific vision. Um, uh, but of course, in the process, I try to learn from them. And in the last part of the book, uh, I, I give more of a dogmatic appraisal, a constructive appraisal, in which I I, I try to um, uh, articulate a theology of, of the beatific vision, still relying very much on, on historical figures, um, but somewhat more systematically trying to say 
what are some of the key elements in, in um, the doctrine of the beatific vision uh, that are important and that perhaps we need to, need to um, highlight, uh, recover perhaps? And um, the overriding theme there that I use there is, is the notion of apprenticeship or pedagogy. Um, so God apprentices us, as it were, like a, like a master um, training an apprentice. And I'm taking that notion from St. Irenaeus initially uh, for Irenaeus. Pedagogy is hugely important. And um, interestingly, uh, much later for John Calvin too, the notion of apprenticeship or pedagogy was, was very, very important. Although, although um, in some ways, um, Calvin articulated it differently than, than did uh, Irenaeus in the second century. So, and, and that said, um, what I do in the last, last um, chapter is um, I highlight four elements in this, in this divine pedagogy. And I'm, I'm just to quickly recapitulate, um, the first of those four is that pedagogy uh, has to do with God's providential care. Um, we don't simply try to look at God, as it were, but God, first of all, and primarily looks at us, um, both and, and especially Nicholas of Cusa and Jonathan Edwards um, are helpful here, I think. Um, Edwards would almost say, and I, I'm putting it in my own words here, but God looks us into being. God, mm. God looks at us, and 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 by looking and love, looking at us and loving us, um, he, he 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 creates us. He constitutes us. Um, so we we need to have a robust sense of God's providence, God's caring of us for us and for the entire world that He has made. Um, because without such a sense of divine overarching providence, uh, it seems to me that we cannot arrive at the beatific vision. Um, then the second point um, that I deal with uh, throughout much of the book, really, and that I highlight then in the, in the last chapter, is that uh, is the notion that the beatific vision at the end is intrinsically linked to spiritual experiences that we have today. Mm. And what, what I mean by that is that these spiritual experiences of today um, are, are anticipations, sacramental anticipations of the race, of the reality that we will um, be gifted in the hereafter. So whether it's uh, theophanies, God, appearances of God in the Old Testament, uh, prophetic revelation or scripture, or ultimately Christ himself as the theophany, um, each of these ways of, of, of God revealing himself, a God, as it were, um, uh, accustoming us, as Irenaeus would have it, accustoming us, getting us used to, to seeing him. He shows us uh, increasingly more and more um, of, of himself. So there's a, a link, I think, between the self-revelations of God in history and the beatific vision um, in the hereafter. Um, then the third aspect, and you already touched on that in an earlier question, is um, the Christological centrality of the beatific vision. To see God is to see him in Christ. Um, and so to see God face to face, um, 
for I think the best parts of, of, of Christian tradition is to see Jesus Christ himself, God's face in Jesus Christ. It is always God's self-communication in Christ. Um, and, and the last point is um, that vision, beatific vision, is, um, is transformative. It changes us. It transfigures us, you could say. Right in the transfiguration, the, th- the three disciples, James and John, they see a transfigured Christ, and they are transfigured in the process. And so um, purity in heart and vision of God are closely linked. Um, think of the, of, the, of the sixth beatitude. The pure in heart will see God. Without, hol- without holiness, no one will see God. Um, and so we're being deified in our vision of God in the hereafter. Um, we're being changed. Um, we're physically going to be changed, I think. Perhaps we could even we could even speculate that we will be changed physically in such a way that even with these physically changed eyes, um, we will see God uh, in the hereafter. Uh, so those are those are some of the some of the um, elements that I tried to highlight in uh, in the dogmatic part of the book. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Bearsma. Um, if if I do say my say so myself, uh, I found seeing God uh, to be almost like a, an ecumenical uh, tour de force, right? I mean, there you know you're you're drawing on uh, reform tradition, but then uh, the Western theological tradition as well as the Eastern. I mean, it was just uh, you know, I mean. I know it wasn't intended to be comprehensive. But it certainly felt like it was at times, um, and so I just thought it was it was a very interesting way to draw those strands together um, in in ways that uh, you know I, I wouldn't have uh, have foreseen. So um, thank you for uh, thank you for this great book and uh, in, and coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute uh, you know honor and privilege to to be able to chat with you for a little bit. No, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, uh, Chad. It's been a joy. And uh, it's been great to chat with you. Thank you. This has been a History of Christian Theology. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. Send us a comment. uh, Like us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, We appreciate it.